I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to the Brain Science Podcast, the show for everyone who has a brain. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 112. Today's episode is an interview with Dr. Gregory Hickok, author of The Myth of Mirror Neurons, The Real Neuroscience of Communication and Cognition. This is really a misleading title because Dr. Hickok's book does not challenge the existence of mirror neurons, but he does challenge the most popular theory of what they do. The Myth of Mirror Neurons is available from our sponsor, Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audio content. If you are new to Audible, you can get this or any other book in their huge catalog for free by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science. Way back in episode 35, I discussed the book Mirrors in the Brain, How Our Minds Share Actions, Emotions, and Experience by Giacomo Rizzolatti. Rizzolatti was part of the team in Parma, Italy, that originally discovered mirror neurons, and this book provides a detailed description of the early experiments. If you have the free Brain Science Podcast mobile app, you'll find this episode for free as an episode extra. I will say a little bit more about this after the interview. Before I play the interview, I want to remind you that you can find detailed show notes and episode transcripts on our website at brainsciencepodcast.com, and you can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. I will be back after the interview to review the key ideas and to share some exciting news about next month's episode. My guest today is Greg Hickok, and you're at UC Irvine, right? That is correct. Well, Greg, it's great to have you on the Brain Science Podcast today. Good to be here. Thank you. Would you mind just starting out by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I got interested in in the mind, actually, years ago in high school. It was just something that fascinated me, disorders of the brain, disorders of the mind. While in college, I read a book by Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his wife for a hat and was fascinated by the neurological disorders and decided that that's what I wanted to do, study brain disorders for my career. And so I ended up going to graduate school in any program that I could get into that had something to do with mind and brain. I happened to get into a program that dealt with language and the brain, and that's kind of how I ended up going down the language neuroscience track. And then it just kind of progressed from there. And I just got deeper into the research side and the neuroscience of it. The neuroscience has really taken off, so it's become quite exciting. Could you tell us a little bit about what exactly about language you've been studying during your career? 
Sure. Well, the aspect of language that got me the most interested, and it's actually kind of interesting, when I was an undergraduate and taking courses in psychology, they would inevitably have a language section when we were learning about human behavior and cognition. That was the part that bored me the most because we learned that there were phonemes and morphemes and there was syntax and it had different categories of nouns and verbs and things like that. It just bored me to death. But then when I went to graduate school, I started to learn a bit more about what language really is. Scientifically, it is a, a much richer, a much deeper system. It's not something that we necessarily learn from our parents. It is more a function of how the brain is structured to communicate ideas through uh, an auditory channel or through a visual channel in the case of sign language. And that's really what got me fascinated is language as a biological system for communicating ideas. So I started out studying how we understand sentences just purely behaviorally because this was before functional MRI or methods of imaging brain activity. And then once these new tools came online in the 90s, I was able to switch over and dig into the neuroscience of it. And so I've been looking at questions of how we perceive speech sounds, how we control our uh, motor system for generating speech, all in terms of brain circuits and a lot of other aspects of language. Great. We're going to come back to some more language stuff in a few minutes. But since we are today talking about your new book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, The Real Neuroscience of Communication and Cognition, I always like to ask, why did you write your book? Because it's a lot of work to write a book. It is a lot of work. It's a, it's a fun experience, a learning experience. I ended up writing this book almost by accident. Like I said, I was working in language neuroscience and a different domain of neuroscience having to do with mirror neurons and understanding of actions started out in monkeys, kind of spread into human theory. This work started colliding with my own work. That is, these cells were implicated in language behaviors and in some of the same sorts of things that I was studying. And so I kind of had to explore what this research was showing and understand it in relation to my own work. And it turned out that a lot of the claims that were being made first about language and then later, as I looked more carefully about lots of other domains, it turned out that these ideas didn't really hold up. So I started looking more carefully, mostly as a way of putting my work in the context of this broader work on the neuroscience of action understanding. And I was giving a, a lecture once at University of California, Berkeley, talking initially about why mirror neurons don't explain everything I'm about to talk about in my own work. And one of the editors of a prominent journal asked me to write a critique of mirror neurons for their journal, which I agreed to do, and that became quite popular. And that just kind of evolved into the idea of maybe writing a book explaining why mirror neurons don't explain everything in terms of human cognition and communication, and that's where the book came from. I want to take a slight, well, first of all, I want to clarify the fact that you aren't challenging the existence of mirror neurons, but you are challenging some of the current theories about what mirror neurons do. That's exactly right. I believe mirror neurons definitely exist in monkeys. The evidence for them in humans is actually kind of scant, but I have always believed, even when there wasn't any evidence for it, that they do exist in humans for functional reasons. Humans have behaviors that cells of the sort found in monkeys, these mirror neurons, almost for sure exist in humans. So as I understand your book, it seems that it has two important themes. One is that the data 
don't really seem to fit the current action understanding theory. And the second is that this action understanding theory was inspired by the motor theory of language, which had actually already been rejected by most speech scientists. So what I'd like to do is I want to sort of take an opposite direction from the way you organized your book and start with the motor theory of language and ask you if you would give us a little bit of background about that theory, you know, where it came from and why it was rejected. And I apologize if you can hear my German shepherd barking. He thinks he's a guard dog. No problem. Sure. It's the motor theory of speech perception, not language broadly. And the basic idea came out of work in the 40s and 50s when researchers, a lot of them congregated at Haskins Lab in Connecticut, trying to figure out how humans perceive speech sounds. And part of the goal was to develop systems that would um, automate the process so that machines could do it and assist deaf people, for example. So they started looking at the acoustics of speech sounds. And the goal was kind of simple. They wanted to try to build a kind of acoustic alphabet for understanding speech, just like you can take written letters and put them together to make words. The idea was that there might be something like the equivalent of a letter that could be identified in the acoustics of speech sounds so that you could then identify each individual letter or phoneme and then translate that into something that could be played for whatever purposes. So when they started looking at the acoustics of speech, what they noticed was that it wasn't the case at all that speech sounds are structured in the acoustic stream like letters are in a page. With letters on a page, you have the letters divided by spaces in between and and then more space in between the words, and you can clearly identify the units. In speech, that's not the case. If you look at the acoustics of a speech signal, it is basically one big uninterrupted stream for the most part, there are breaks in some of the acoustic energy here here and there, but they don't correspond to breaks between individual sounds or even words. So finding an acoustic signature for each phoneme turned out to be impossible. And a very difficult problem, it's called the lack of invariance problem. Basically, what this means is that when they looked even closer, what they found was that a given sound, say a D sound like in, in dog, has different acoustic signatures depending on its context. So dog versus dip, for example, that D sound sounds like a D in both cases, but it may have very different acoustic signatures. And this was a problem because it wasn't clear how we recognize speech sounds at all, and it looked like the acoustics weren't providing the relevant clues. So the theorists at Haskins Lab, and uh, Alvin Lieberman was among the leaders in this work, suggested that maybe what we do, instead of recognizing the sounds, we recognize the motoric gestures that are used to produce them. So if you think about how you generate a D sound in your own speech, you lift the tip of your tongue up behind your teeth and stop the airflow, and then you release it in a burst. And that's the way you do it in all sorts of contexts, like dog and dip and all sorts of D sounds are made the same way. And so the idea was that there is a nice consistency between the way we produce sounds and the sounds that we hear. And the inference was made that maybe what we're doing is recovering the gestures, the motor patterns that produce each phoneme. And that's what we use to recover the information about what the sound is. So this was the motor theory of speech perception, and it became quite popular in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. It was a major topic of research in speech. 
But after a lot of research on the topic, it was discovered that you really didn't need to have a motor system or the ability to produce speech in order to understand speech sounds. So the idea that we are recovering the gestures, that we are somehow mapping what we hear onto the way we produce speech sounds ourselves, turned out to be false. And by the time mirror neurons were discovered, the motor theory of speech perception was pretty much abandoned by speech scientists, as it is today. It's, it's largely discredited among speech scientists. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that two of the lines of evidence that you mentioned in your book involved chinchillas and young babies, two creatures that obviously can't speak, but it's been demonstrated they can tell the difference between speech sounds. So that's some of the evidence, right? That's correct. And other evidence comes from individuals who, for various neurological reasons, could either not acquire the ability to speak or had suffered brain damage that prevented them from speaking normally. Patients of this sort can perceive speech sounds quite well, which is not predicted by the motor theory at all. Okay, so then what happened with the mirror neurons? Right, so when mirror neurons were discovered, they basically happened across some cells in monkey motor cortex, the motor cortex of, uh, of macaque monkeys, that had some puzzling properties. The group was studying motor control in monkeys, basically trying to figure out how animals, monkeys and humans by extension, can use object shape information to guide movement. So if you think about what you do when you reach out for a stapler versus say, a cup of coffee on your desk, the hand shapes that you use to grab those objects is different and appropriate to the objects. And we use this information even before we, the reach gets to the object, so you're pre-shaping your grip. And the question was, how can the brain take visual information and transform it into motor patterns that match those visual shapes so that you can grasp things normally? So this was what these investigators were working on, and they were doing some beautiful work discovering that there were cells in motor cortex of the monkey that responded or fired when the monkey reached for objects with particular hand shapes, and sometimes the neurons were tuned to particular hand shapes. And then also, these same cells would respond to the visual observation of different objects. And oftentimes, the preferences for these cells for the hand shape and the object tended to match. So it was as if there was some sort of neural matching process where object shape information was being used to select from a vocabulary of possible grip shapes, grip types. So while they were doing an experiment trying to really understand what's going on with these circuits, they noticed that some of these cells that responded during grasping actions also responded when, in between trials when the animal was watching the experimenter reach in to grab the objects out of, a, out of the observation box and exchange them with other objects. So they found that some cells fired while they were observing actions, object-directed actions. And this was a, an interesting result that had never been shown before in motor cortex that cells responded to the observation of actions. And interestingly, the cells tended to have a correspondence between the preferred monkey movement, the preferred grasping actions of the monkey, and the preferred observed action of the experimenter. So if, if a cell preferred a grasping action as opposed to, say, a placing action, 
there tended to be a match between the observation and execution conditions. So this was then a need of an explanation. What are these cells doing? And it was remarked by others that at the time, Giacomo Rizzolatti, who is the principal investigator of all this work in Parma, Italy, he remarked that the property of these cells reminded him of the motor theory because they responded. They were motor cells, first of all, so they were involved in generating gestures or actions, and they responded when the monkey was observing it. So it looked like a mechanism for matching observed actions with motor gestures. And because the motor theory had claimed that we understand speech gestures, that is speech sounds, by mapping them onto the way we produce speech, this seemed like a possible explanation for what mirror neurons are doing. And that's kind of how the whole theory started. But to me, looking back, it's kind of odd that the whole theory was built on an idea that was largely dead to speech scientists. It seems to me like this sort of illustrates an important hazard that any scientist could face if you're inspired by work outside your own area, since it's so hard to keep up with current thought. Last year, one of my guests, I always ask for advice for students, and one of my guests advised students that before they they embark on a research question, the first thing they should do is at least take a virtual trip to the library and do a literature search, because he said... An hour in the library can save you years in the lab. And this was sort of a classic example of making assumptions based on ideas that weren't current from someone else's field. Yeah, it is extremely hard to stay on top of the explosion of knowledge that we've had in neuroscience and psychology lately. And it's it's perfectly understandable this motor theory was in the literature It was a prominent idea, and it would be very easy, especially for someone working in the neuroscience and motor control, not to be fully up-to-date on the way speech scientists have evaluated the theories. Absolutely, there's so much information in the literature. It's hard to keep up on it. Even in one's own area, it's very tough. Yeah. So what about the data from the mirror neuron research that seems to support the motor theory of language perception or speech perception? Yeah, so after mirror neurons were discovered and the theoretical explanation of what they're doing, that is that they're involved in recognizing actions or understanding actions, was proposed and started getting some traction, the obvious next step in this research was to look to see if there was any evidence neurally for this idea in the domain of speech because it was generalized to speech from the beginning. Not only was this theory proposed for the monkey's ability to understand the actions of others, but it was also generalized to speech. And the idea, again, was basically a revival of the motor theory, which said that we perceive speech sounds in term, by mapping them onto motor programs for generating speech. And most of the work that had been done refuting the motor theory of speech perception was done behaviorally before modern neuroscience methods were developed. And so what a lot of neuroscientists did was take a fresh look at the motor theory and see if they could find any evidence for it. And they have, actually. There is plenty of reports that at least are consistent with the idea that the motor system is involved in speech perception. So one of the most interesting examples of this is if you use uh, what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a way of exciting or depressing brain tissue extracranially, that is going through the skull with basically a very strong magnetic pulse can introduce an electrical interference in brain tissue. 
You can disrupt function in motor cortex such that, or excite it such that you can, if you stimulate motor cortex, you can make muscles twitch and things like that. And so what a lot of investigators did was to stimulate motor-related areas and see if that affects the ability to perceive speech. And oftentimes they found that there were subtle effects on the ability to perceive speech when motor areas were stimulated. And this was taken as evidence for motor involvement in speech perception. Some of the problems with that that I've pointed out is that these effects are extremely small and only seem to be observable under the most difficult listening conditions. So in order to get any effect, you have to make the speech sound so hard to hear that you can barely tell what they are. And then when you stimulate motor cortex, you can find some small modulation of reaction time or the ability to detect what these speech sounds are. So it's a very small effect. Some people have said, well, that's all we need to do is to show some small effect. But the bigger picture is that for the most part, you really don't need the motor system to perceive speech sounds as work on the motor theory speech perception showed decades ago. But you did have one thing in there that I thought was really interesting about the way the experiments in speech perception are done. When you use the nonsense syllables as opposed to actually seeing if a person can understand real words, could you talk a little bit about that and why that matters? Sure. This came out of my own work, and it was something that predated my interest in mirror neurons. David Popple and I were working on trying to figure out what parts of the brain were involved in speech perception. We had hit on this idea that kind of contradicted typical thinking about language-brain relationships. The usual view is that the left hemisphere is where language lives and all aspects of language is the purview of the left hemisphere. But when we looked a little bit more carefully, we noticed that it looks like at least the ability to perceive speech sounds and recognize words and understand words was something that both hemispheres could do, that this ability was bilaterally organized in the brain. And so we were trying to basically write a review, a paper, explaining the evidence that led us to this belief. And we uh, received some comments from a reviewer who said that this can't possibly be true because some patients have difficulty discriminating syllables following unilateral or just left hemisphere damage, not bilateral damage. And so we had to look carefully about what this ability involved. And it was a bit of a paradox because depending on the task you examined, you got different, completely different results in terms of what brain systems were involved in perceiving speech sounds. So if you looked at the task that David Popple and I were interested in, that is sort of a naturalistic task of understanding words that are spoken to you, the brain areas that seemed to be implicated were bilateral regions in auditory cortex. And that's what we were trying to promote. However, if you looked at the ability to discriminate pairs of syllables, so be able to tell the difference between a ba and a pa, for example, that ability seemed to involve the left hemisphere predominantly and involved motor-related areas, which was a bit of a puzzle. Furthermore, it was extremely puzzling that some patients who couldn't tell the difference between ba and pa could nonetheless understand or recognize those same sounds in the context of words. And so it turned out that the task absolutely mattered in terms of what brain circuits you get recruited. This helped clarify the situation in terms of the, the neural basis of speech perception. And we had argued in a series of papers over the last decade that if we try to understand language ability from the perspective of natural tasks, that is understanding language processes as we're 
most interested in understanding how they're used. Then the picture that we were trying to tell in terms of bilateral organization held true. But if you introduce artificial tasks where you ask people to do things that aren't necessarily naturally used in language, then you get a very different picture. The example that I always give to people is to think back to the last sentence I just uttered right now and tell me whether there was a paw in it. You really can't do it. It's not something that we do. We don't hear speech sounds. What we do is we hear words or word meanings more accurately. So by asking people to listen to pairs of syllables and make conscious judgments as to the speech sounds, it seems to recruit some brain circuits that are not involved in normal speech processing. So why this matters for the mirror neuron research is that almost all, if not all, of the studies that showed evidence for motor involvement in speech perception have used these sort of artificial, unnatural tasks. And so it's not at all clear that the findings that are emerging have much to do with how the speech system is organized normally. So that's one of the major problems with that area of research. And so it turns out that understanding nonsense syllables or distinguishing between nonsense syllables is is in some ways harder than understanding natural speech, or at least different. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point. It is different. It's it's quite a bit different, yeah. And interesting, an older result seemed to suggest that the ability to identify individual phonemes in syllables like that may depend on explicit training and reading because essentially think about what you're doing when you learn to read is you're learning to recognize the individual sounds of a word and map them onto letters. And there's some evidence to suggest that people who have never learned to read or who are illiterate have a lot of difficulty with these sorts of syllable discrimination tasks because they just don't think of language as being chopped up into individual sounds or even thinking about it as sounds. It it is more something meaningful to them. Um, And having training in, in reading and thinking about the structure of language kind of changes the way we think about it in some ways. Greg, so if the mirror neurons don't really seem to, in your opinion, and I think if you take all the evidence that's in your book, I think it's pretty convincing that mirror neurons don't really support the motor theory of language perception. But what about the basic idea that they support our ability to understand action? Because that's really kind of the bottom line of most of the things that mirror neurons are being given credit for. Right. That is the foundational claim, at least with respect to the work in monkeys. And that's also been extended to human work. Basically, the idea is there that is that our ability to understand the actions of other people depends on our ability to simulate their movements in our own motor system. And that's the mechanism that we use to recognize what they're doing. So oddly enough, this question has not been directly investigated in monkeys. All that we know from the monkeys is that there are cells that respond both when the monkey executes an action and when the monkey observes an action. So it's a purely correlational result. We don't know whether the fact that these cells activate during observation means that that activation is necessary for understanding. There's no direct evidence for that. You might think that there's a way to test it in monkeys, that is by disrupting the function of these cells during observation and see if the monkey has trouble understanding actions. 
that these sorts of studies have never been reported. And it has been suggested by the discoverers of mirror neurons that these sorts of experiments are doomed to fail because the mirror system is so widely distributed throughout different parts of the brain that you couldn't disrupt the whole system. And if you could, it would involve so much damage throughout the brain that the results would be meaningless. So it hasn't been studied in monkeys. It has been studied in humans, which is a bit paradoxical because if it's a problem in monkeys, it should be a problem in humans. But nonetheless, people have looked at it in humans. Like in the domain of speech, there have been some suggestive findings. So, for example, there's a condition known as apraxia, which is a disorder of voluntary movement control caused by brain damage. And apraxia, there are various sorts, but basically these sorts of disorders show up when you ask people to generate pantomimes, typically is the most common thing. So you might ask them to show me how you would use a phone or use a toothbrush or comb your hair. And patients will have a lot of difficulty coordinating movements to demonstrate these actions. So that's referred to as apraxia. And there has been some evidence for a while suggesting that in some patients with apraxia, there is a deficit also in the ability to recognize actions. So this was something that was also noticed by the mirror neuron discoverers and discussed as a possible human version of an action understanding deficit following damage to the motor system, that is, parts of the brain that are involved in controlling voluntary actions. So people have studied this more recently and found actually that there is some correlation between the ability to recognize actions and generate actions as noticed in apraxia. And that's taken as support for the idea. However, if you look at that same study or those same studies, what you find is that there is a sizable proportion of the patients who are studied who have significant apraxia and yet can recognize actions just fine. And what that tells us is that damage to the motor system such that it disrupts movement control does not necessarily result in a deficit in action understanding, which tells us that these two things don't go together necessarily. And so that's fairly strong evidence that in humans, the ability to recognize actions is not dependent on the motor system. More broadly, if you think about it, we recognize actions that we can't ourselves perform every day. And we see, I'm looking at birds flying outside my office window right now. I can recognize that and I can't fly. Other animals like snakes slither and do things that we can't do and yet we can recognize those actions. Moreover, we better be able to recognize and understand those actions from an evolutionary standpoint. It's very important to be able to know whether an animal is getting ready to attack us or doing something that we need to be aware of. And so the ability to recognize the actions of animals that have movements not in our own motor repertoire is absolutely critical from an evolutionary standpoint. So it would be a very bad design of the brain if we could only recognize actions that we ourselves can generate. In your book, you talk about eight different anom anomalies that sort of call into question this action understanding theory. Obviously, we don't have time to get into all those. If you were asked what, in your mind, is the biggest evidence against this theory, the most convincing to you? Wow, what's most convincing to me, because it's what I study the most, is the speech work. So we've talked about that. Just because there is so much of it, that is the most compelling. It's the one area that's kind of served as a test case for this idea. 
We have a very long history of work on motor theory of speech perception, and we know that you don't need a motor speech system to recognize speech sounds, and that comes from, like you mentioned, chinchillas can do it, prelingual infants can do it, people with severe cerebral palsy, for example, who can't generate speech can recognize speech just fine. Instance after instance of this same thing. You just don't need a motor system to perceive speech sounds. And when we look outside that area into movement, some of the examples that I just gave you, you don't need to be able to move to recognize actions. Think about people who, say Stephen Hawking, who has difficulty controlling his body and is functioning quite well, recognizing presumably lots of things that move around him in the world. So I think you give a pretty convincing argument against the action understanding theory. So what do mirror neurons, what do they do? This has been the question for quite some time. Interestingly, in the very first publication on mirror neurons by the Parma group, they came up with a theory and then ended up rejecting it. But I think the theory was dead on. It was the first paragraph in the discussion section of their research paper after they described their results. And basically, they observe that not only is it necessary for us to use information about object shape to guide our actions, like I was talking about, but the actions of other animals uh, around us are also going to be useful in guiding our own actions. So, for example, you can think of a handshake. If I thrust my hand out to shake your hand, your response to that is going to be dependent on your ability to recognize that action. Similarly, in lots of other animals, you might change your behavior, whether your action selection, based on whether it looks like another animal is coming to attack you or, in the case of a monkey colony, might be interested in grooming you or whatever. The actions of other animals are relevant to our own actions, and it stands to reason that we need a system, a neural circuit, that takes action, observed actions as input and uses those actions to select from a vocabulary of possible self-actions. And mirror neurons are nicely suited to do exactly this. So this possibility was suggested by the Parma group initially. It was rejected, I think reasonably so, at the time, because they noticed that mirror neurons tended to copy the actions pretty closely. So if a monkey, if a cell preferred a grasping action, of a particular sort, that cell would also prefer observing a similar kind of action, which seems to be a foundation for a kind of imitation-like process where the monkey sees another animal or a human doing one thing and it imitates it. Monkey see, monkey do kind of response. It turns out that if you look at the behavior of macaque monkeys, this kind of imitation just doesn't occur. Direct imitation doesn't occur. And so the investigators discounted it as a possible explanation, and that's quite a reasonable assumption. It turns out later, though, when people looked more carefully at imitation, thinking about it in a broader sense, macaque monkeys and, in fact, lots of animals imitate actions in a broader way. So, for example, lots of animals will learn by observation. It's called observational learning, appropriately enough, where one animal can see another animal solving a task and learn from the observation of that animal. So basically taking actions that you're observing and using it to guide your own actions. And this is the sort of thing that I think mirror neurons could support. That's my own idea. And that's consistent with what they say about the canonical neurons, the other ones that they recorded that responded to performing an action and then an object. That's what they said they were for. 
Exactly right. So it fits very nicely in, in the broader scheme of things. So these canonical neurons, which are the neurons that respond to viewing objects of various shapes and to reaching for them and interacting with them with their motor system, that's exactly what they're doing. The visual information is being used to select appropriate actions. In the case of mirror neurons, the idea is that the visual information from movements or the actions of other animals is being used to select appropriate actions in the observer's motor system. And these may be mirror-like movements. So, for example, if one monkey is reaching for a piece of food, that might trigger a similar kind of movement in another monkey who might want to compete for that piece of food. Or it could be a non-mirror movement. Think about examples of if you're being attacked by another animal if one animal is raising a limb to hit you or lunging after you, you don't want to copy that movement. You want to do the opposite movement. And in fact, if you look carefully at the mirror neuron reports, the original mirror neuron reports, there are cells that show these opposite-like responses. So what I think has happened is that these researchers have discovered a very important system that is basically taking observed actions of other animals and using that to select appropriate actions, some mirror, some non-mirror, they ended up focusing on the ones that were mirror-like and then, I think, kind of going down the wrong path based on that initial assumption. Whereas, I think if we take a broader perspective, this circuit makes a huge amount of sense and fits in nicely with this other circuit involving canonical neurons and object-driven actions and so on. Yeah, and it seems like everybody's lost sight of what to me seemed like the really exciting discovery, which was that neurons can be both sensory and motor at the same time. Because then after that, they later found mirror neurons in the parietal lobe. Their interpretation of those might have been different if that would have been the first place they found them. Yeah, that's true. Finding them in the frontal areas, motor cortex areas of the macaque may have thrown them off a bit more because the area that they were working in, an area known in the macaque as F5, corresponds, people think, with human Broca's area, which is long thought to be a speech area. And so that drew the connection to speech and then to the motor theory. And that, I think, kind of was part of what led the field down the wrong path. If they had discovered them in the parietal lobe, where there are language-related areas, but they're not so prominent, it may have gone in a different direction because there was already evidence in the literature for sensory motor circuits in the parietal lobe that were doing the sorts of things we were talking about, using sensory input to guide action selection or motor control. Well, I promised you that we wouldn't run late, so I'm just going to ask you if you have anything else. I know we could talk, obviously, there's, we've barely scratched the surface, but I hope we've given everyone the highlights. Is there anything else you want to share before we close? I think the interesting thing for me is the kind of inside view of how science works. It's been an interesting investigation for me to kind of look back and see where theories come from how they get debated, why people might go off on one tangent or not or another, how discoveries happen by accident. The mirror neurons were discovered completely by accident and could have led to a wildly important reshaping of our understanding of the mind. And really, that's why everyone got so excited about it, about the discovery, and I think why it's caught fire in neuroscience and psychology is because, if correct, the idea really would have changed the way we thought about how the mind works and how the brain creates the mind. There's a good reason why people called them the equivalent of the discovery of DNA or the cells that shaped civilization. 
they really did offer a possible explanation for everything from language to disorders like autism to an explanation for why babies are so prodigious in terms of imitation abilities and all sorts of other things. It just uh, why we have empathy, why we enjoy sports and art and all sorts of things. That mirror neurons seem to be a, a possible explanation for this. And so that was very exciting. It could have been huge. And it's interesting for me to kind of look historically in a way how things happened and what the implications are. And then learn, learn from that, not only in terms of understanding how science can go wrong, but also taking what's come out of this and turning it into something in advance. So it's forced a lot of us, myself included, to look really carefully about theories and ideas about how communication works in the brain, why we do what we do in terms of language and observation of others and empathy and all these sorts of human things that we are very interested in explaining. It's really shaped my approach to looking at these issues. It's been a, a very interesting experience that I've tried to detail in the book, how this really opens things up. Yeah, I'm glad that you took the time to write this book. I mean, I've read some criticisms, you know, like Patricia Churchland's, but for somebody to, you know, really get into the nitty gritty and really dig into it like you have done is very valuable. I'm definitely going to encourage my listeners to read your book. Do you have any advice for students? Uh, read. We talked at the beginning. A lot of outside of mirror neurons, a lot of what I've been able to discover, I've realized is already in the literature. There's a, an old saying that says that if you think you've got a new idea, it just means that you haven't read enough. And it's absolutely true. We tend to recycle ideas. So there's a lot of information in the literature waiting to be discovered. It can really help you generate new ideas, stuff that's been talked about in the past that can be revitalized or updated in terms of modern ideas. It's very important to go back to the literature. And also very importantly in connection with this is if there is a claim that such and such works like this and it's widely believed that it makes a lot of sense, distrust it and go back to the original literature and make sure that it's correct because oftentimes very standard assumptions in the field tend to be based on misinterpretations or overinterpretations, and they just don't have any evidence. That turned out to be the case in my area in terms of just speech perception. It's more bilateral than the traditional dogma thought, and I didn't know that until I went back and looked for the evidence and found that it wasn't there. And I did the same thing with mirror neurons. Everyone believed it. I went back to look at the evidence, and it turned out the evidence wasn't there. Well, that sounds like a good note to finish on. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Gregory Hickok for taking the time to talk with me. The discovery of mirror neurons has captured the imagination of many people, both inside and outside of science. His book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, provides a fascinating look into how easy it is for a theory to take off without actually being proven. So I want to review a few key take-home points. The term mirror neuron refers to a neuron that fires both when an action is performed and when the same action is observed. Mirror neurons were first found in motor areas of the monkey brain and were later also found in the parietal lobe, which is a sensory area. 
The evidence for their presence in humans is mostly indirect, but there has been a single experiment in which mirror neuron-like behavior has been recorded from single neurons in a human patient. One idea that I think has been forgotten in the rush to figure out what they are doing is the fact that their existence proves that neurons are not necessarily purely motor or purely sensory, which is what neuroscience used to assume. Dr. Hickok is not challenging the existence of mirror neurons, but he is challenging the action understanding theory, the idea that the role of mirror neurons is to help us, or monkeys, understand the actions of others. This is an intuitively appealing idea that suggests endless applications, such as explaining autism. The problem is it does not stand up to the evidence. The book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, has two main themes. First, it explains how this theory was inspired by another called the motor theory of speech perception, which had been abandoned by speech scientists because of overwhelming evidence that the ability to produce speech sounds is not necessary to speech perception. Second, Dr. Hickok considers a list of findings or anomalies that don't fit the action understanding theory of mirror neurons. We didn't cover all of these, but one that stands out for me is the obvious fact that we can understand actions that we can't perform. So what do mirror neurons actually do? One possibility is that their function is similar to the one assumed for the so-called canonical neurons, which are ones that fire both during a motor action and when an object of a certain shape is observed. These canonical neurons are assumed to be important in action selection. Observing a shape helps you to choose the right hand motion. I think Dr. Hickok mentioned that mirror neurons and canonical neurons are actually located in the same brain area. In fact, during the original experiment, they found neurons that fired when the action that was observed and the action that were performed were the same or similar. They were called congruent neurons. And they also recorded from neurons that were the opposite. That is, the action and the action observed were opposite. But for some reason, nobody thought that the anti-mirror neurons were interesting. Consider the numbers of the original experiment, which was done making recordings from the F5 motor area of the macaque monkey in 1992. They recorded from 184 neurons, and most of these were, as expected, purely motor. 87 of them responded to some sort of visual information, 48 responded to objects, and 39 responded to observing action. Of the ones that responded to action, 12 were congruent. That is, that there was a correspondence between the action observed and the one performed. 11 were anti-congruent or anti-mirror. I couldn't find the number for the number of canonical neurons in this experiment, but I think it was at least as many as the 12 mirror neurons. I'm thinking it was in the 20s, but I haven't been able to find that. At any rate, the neurons that were later called mirror neurons were actually a very small percentage of the neurons that they recorded from. 
So one possibility is, as I said, that they are doing something similar to what the canonical neurons do. That is that they're helping us pick actions. Another possibility is that they have a role in imitative learning. This, I think, is Hickok's preferred interpretation, and there's more about this in his book. But it's fair to say that the action understanding theory has not held up. Now, that's not probably going to be very important five or ten years from now. The reason I've spent so much time on this goes way beyond mirror neurons. I think this story illustrates several key ideas about how science ought to be done compared to what actually happens sometimes. First, even if a theory appears intuitively true, we need to remember that correlation does not equal causation. So how do you determine this? Well, does the result happen when the suspected cause is removed? If not, that supports the theory. But theories can never truly be proven. They can only be falsified. This is an idea that came to us from a philosopher of science named Karl Popper. So basically, if a theory's predictions fail, it is considered falsified. So the action understanding theory predicts that if you can't perform an action, you shouldn't be able to understand it. And we just know that that's not true. Paralyzed people can understand the actions of those around them, and normal people can understand the actions of animals that do things they can't do. And there's a lot of other evidence that could be considered falsification, but I think that one is the simplest and most straightforward. So that's number two. Theories can't be proved. They can only be falsified. Three, just because a theory is popular or generally accepted doesn't exempt it from these principles. For example, Dr. Hickok looked into the literature for data proving that language perception was unilateral and found that it was lacking. And then he went on to do some experiments that show that normal language perception is probably bilateral. Four, if you are going to base a new theory on someone else's work, you need to examine the original work with a critical eye and ask yourself, how can this be falsified? In the case of mirror neurons, this was not done. And in the myth of mirror neurons, Hickok amply documents how the evidence against the action understanding was ignored along the way. He also credits people like Michael Arbib, who have actually modified their ideas as the evidence has evolved. The history of science is full of stories like this, which demonstrate that science is done by human beings who are subject to the same cognitive biases and emotional tendencies as everyone else. What sets science apart is it strives to be self-correcting. As usual, we've just barely scratched the surface of the research that Dr. Hickok has reviewed in his book. So if you want to learn more, I highly recommend his book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons. Also, if the topic's new to you, I refer you back to episode 35, which contains a detailed discussion of many of the early experiments. If you are a new listener, you may be wondering how to get episode 35 since it doesn't appear in the feed of free episodes. 
As I mentioned at the start of the show, it is available as an extra if you have the mobile app. In that case, you just look for the extras that go with episode 112. You can also buy it as a single episode for $1 on the Brain Science Podcast website. Of course, premium subscribers get all back episodes and transcripts for only $5 a month. You can go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash premium for the details. I want to thank those of you who have signed up for the premium subscription, and I also appreciate those of you who support my work with donations. But many of you have told me that the premium subscription is much more convenient. Even if you can't support the show financially, you can help by sharing it with others and by leaving reviews in iTunes. I have some exciting news about next month's episode. On October 25, 2014, the Dalai Lama is visiting Birmingham, Alabama. He has several public events scheduled, but he is also hosting an invitation-only event at the UAB School of Medicine called Neuroplasticity and Healing. The other participants will be three scientists who have been interviewed on the Brain Science Podcast, Dr. Edward Taub, Dr. Norman Joyge, and Dr. Michael Mersnick. I'm going to be attending this event, so next month's episode will provide exclusive coverage. I'm not sure exactly when the episode will come out, but I'm going to try to get it out before the American Thanksgiving weekend, since I know that many of you like to listen on road trips. This does mean that I will probably push Dr. Evan Thompson's return visit into 2015. I appreciate all the encouragement I've gotten about my fellowship in palliative care medicine. It's going great, although I did miss a couple of weeks of work at the end of September because I fell and broke my wrist. Before that happened, I recorded an interview for a new episode of Books and Ideas, and I'm hoping to get that edited and out soon. Finally, I want to emphasize how important your feedback is to the show. I can't implement everyone's suggestions, but your feedback does influence future shows, and it keeps me going when I want to quit. There are a number of ways for you to send me feedback. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or post comments on the Facebook fan page or the Google Plus page. But the best place to start a conversation about a specific episode is our discussion forum on Goodreads. The mobile app also makes sending feedback easy. It has a button that says at contact, and if you go to that, you'll see Twitter, Facebook, email, and website. And there's also a button for calling. But to be perfectly honest with you, I don't really like the call-in option very much because the Google transcription sometimes comes out to be pretty garbled. If you want me to personally see what you have to say, then email or Goodreads are the best choices. Otherwise, you can use whatever method is most convenient for you. As always, I appreciate your listening, and I look forward to talking with you again very soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright 2014 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. 
The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccio. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com. 